You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hello, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and this is our 100th episode. This podcast started in 2016 with our first episode on Zika virus with Dr. Julia Sammons, who now leads our hospital's COVID task force. There have been so many topics covered in the past 99 episodes, and I think we've all learned a lot together. Like many, though, the pandemic has caused us to pivot to recording virtually, but this has also expanded our opportunities for guests. So today, for our special 100th episode, we have a special guest from Vermont. Today, we're talking about addiction. Joining me is Jessica Leahy, who writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She's also a co-host of the Hashtag Am Writing podcast, which is a great resource for all kinds of writers and honestly just readers too. Today, though, we're talking about addiction because Jessica Leahy has a new book called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, coming out now in April. So welcome to the podcast, Jessica Leahy. Thank you so much. As I mentioned, you've been writing about many things within education, parenting, and child welfare for many years now. But can you tell us why it was important to you to write a book about addiction now? This is a book that really came out of, you know, a couple of years post Gift of Failure, trying to figure out exactly what I wanted to do next. And I love my job because my job is to get interested in a topic, totally geek out, research the heck out of it, and then write about it for other people who might be interested in the same topic. But for me, you know, this book came out of my having gotten sober about the same time I sold The Gift of Failure. So it's going to be eight years in June. And knowing that I have two children who sort of came out of my body with a genetic predisposition for substance abuse, and then about a year into my own recovery, I started teaching in a drug and alcohol rehab for adolescents. So once a week, I was their writing teacher, and I did that for five years. So all of these things sort of came together, and I wanted to understand when the experts say substance abuse is preventable, what does that mean? Like. Mm -hmm. What what can we control? What can't we? What role does, you know, genetics, epigenetics, uh, nature, nurture, all of those elements, what role do those things play in preventing substance abuse? And honestly, I'm married to a, a statistician and a physician, and picking apart data and being really critical of data is sort of a fun game. We, <laughs> we're so dorky. <laughs> a fun game we play. And so, you know, looking at what was reliable and what wasn't reliable and talking about the big picture of what really works and what doesn't work to mm -hmm. prevent substance abuse in kids. And I know from listening to Hashtag Am Writing that you always advise writers not to start writing a book about a topic that they don't want to spend a ton of time Ugh. immersed in and many years. Yeah. So were you worried yeah. about that with the personal connection to this topic that maybe it would be too much? No. In fact, I mean, it's certainly scary. You know, it's funny now that the book is starting to 
land in people's hands. Uh, advanced copies just started landing in people's hands yesterday. It's really scary because the whole first chapter really is a deep dive into the ugliest, darkest parts of my substance abuse and recovery. And some of that was news. I mean, my husband read the galley and it was news to him. <laughs> some of it was news <laughs> to him. I had to have long talks with my family. Mm-hmm. But for me anyway, that happened a year ago. So I'm good now. And I also know as someone, I do a lot of speaking. I'm out on the road a lot, mostly speaking about gift of failure stuff until, of course, the pandemic hit. And so every single time I refer to my own recovery on stage, I inevitably have people who reach out to me after the fact. And my understanding of the way this works is the more willing I am to talk about addiction and recovery, the more comfortable other people are going to be um, revealing that about themselves as well. And the only way we get better is by connecting. You know, a lot of people say the opposite of addiction is connection. And for me, anyway, that was very true. Because when I was in the deepest, ugliest places of my addiction, I didn't have anyone, even my best friend, my husband, I couldn't talk to him about it. So I really think it's important for me to get out there and talk about this as much as possible. And when you talk about having to spend a couple of years with the topic, I mean, I still get excited talking about gift of failure. And I've been out on the road (laughs) talking about that for six years, mainly because I continue to read the research. I continue to learn. I learn from all of the teachers I talk to and all the parents I talk to and definitely from all of the kids I talk to. So I see writing a book as a starting place for all those conversations that get to happen afterwards. And that means that I'm going to be wrong sometimes and stuff in the book is going to be like, oh, I wish I knew that, you know, three years ago. Some of that is, wow, this was a great starting place for this whole new conversation. But because I'm also a journalist, I can then write about those tangents that go off from the topics I've written about. But that still rings true. If you do not want to spend at least two years thinking about, talking about, writing about something, just don't write a book on it because (laughs) you're going to be talking about it for an awfully, and people will be emailing you articles about it (laughs) for a very long time. Um, Relatives will be cutting articles out of newspapers and sending them to you in the mail. And so, yeah, have a lot of um, enthusiasm for a topic before starting to write a book about it. Well, thank you for sharing your enthusiasm with us. Let's dig (laughs) into some of the data that you love so much. In the addiction inoculation, you discuss that adolescents often have the perspective that everybody does it in reference to substance Mm -hmm. use. So can you give us some of the data about the actual scope of this issue? Is everyone doing it? Yeah, that's a great point. And the reason it's so important to have a handle on the reality as opposed to the perception, there's a couple of things. We as humans tend to overestimate other people's interest in, for example, substances. So for there's really interesting research um, that was done where I have two kids, one's in college, one's in high school. If I were to go to my college age son and I were to say, how much do you, you think your friends drink? Most likely he's going to overestimate mm-hmm. how much his friends drink and what their interest is in alcohol. And so, for example, if I were to say, how much interest would there be in an event at your college where there's no alcohol, he would be likely to say, oh, no, other people really want alcohol to be there. He will tend to overestimate that. It's something called pluralistic ignorance. And if we combat that with real information about 
you know, for example, if you have a kid in eighth grade and you're like, well, it's no big deal, you know, everybody's trying alcohol. Well, the answer to that is no, that's not true, actually. The best data we have is that only about 25% of kids graduate or leave eighth grade having tasted, quote, more than a sip of alcohol. And even if you have a high school kid, and this still stuns me when you have a high school kid and they're saying, you know, look, drinking is no big deal. Everyone drinks in high school. Again, that's not true. It's less than 60%. It's like Mm -hmm. 57% of kids say that they've had, quote, more than a sip of alcohol by graduation. So understanding that giving kids a different way to think about those sort of approaches, like, you know, everyone's doing it, it's no big deal. And the no big deal thing is another thing I address in the book, because I talk about the brain development, stuff like that. Giving kids that rebuttal is really powerful because of this thing called inoculation theory, that when you give kids the ability to rebut the point, like it's no big deal, or everyone's doing it, it not only protects them against risky behaviors like drinking or doing drugs, it also can help, it generalizes and can also protect them from other risky behaviors like having early sex or, mm-hmm. or you know, doing things that put their body and their their minds and their emotions at risk. So it's a really cool concept that is important for us to give kids data, help them understand the why and not just the because I said so, because because I said so and scare tactics don't work from a substance abuse prevention perspective. Right. So yeah, that everyone does it thing is... Um, It's just not true. And the best data we have comes out. Once a year, by the way, there's an organization that puts out a study called Monitoring the Future about 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders' attitudes around drugs and alcohol. And, you know, it's coming from the kids themselves about how much drinking or drugs they are doing. And it seems to be a really reliable barometer. Mm, And that's a great resource for us to know. When I talk to my teen patients about their opinions on substance use, they typically have this hierarchy of what they think is harmless or risky. And this Mm -hmm. hierarchy seems to vary between individuals. For example, one person may say, I drink beer, but I would never smoke pot. Or another says, I smoke Mm -hmm. pot, but vaping is gross. But when I was growing up, I was taught the gateway drug hypothesis, which, you know, I'm a product of the 80s and 90s. And the belief then was that one substance would open the doors to other substances. So how true is this kind of gateway hypothesis? Yeah, so the gateway hypothesis thing is has kind of been debunked, but it is true that kids tend to follow certain patterns. Mm-hmm. From baseline, I also want to make it really clear, just because your kid tries drugs and alcohol doesn't mean they're going to have a problem with drugs and alcohol. I mean, right. about 10% of us are wired in such a way that we, um, I, <laughs> you know, just really alcohol affects my brain differently or my body differently than other people's. And so... Keeping in mind that when I talk about kids using drugs and alcohol, I'm concerned about their brains. I'm concerned about their bodies. I am concerned about, you know, their future potential for having a substance use disorder. But that's not my first concern Mm -hmm. because that's, you know, only about 10% of kids. So just from that perspective, I think it's important to talk about that. But, you know, we tended to hear about the gateway hypothesis because when crack sort of hit the news and became a big thing, they're like, oh, it's so addictive. It's breaking the gateway hypothesis. This is, you know, if you take crack, you're going to be addicted immediately. And that was just media um, hype. It does look like, though, there is a progression that tends to make sense and that has evolved, especially with vaping, which is that Kids who vape are more likely to try tobacco cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Kids who 
try, who drink beer. There's sort of certain patterns that seem to hold true. And in certain communities, those patterns can be slightly different. Like, for example, women can be have a slightly different pattern than men. And for example, there's one study of African-Americans that shows that they're more likely to start with marijuana before the drinking. So there's all sorts of patterns that have to do with what's acceptable within your community. But the gateway hypothesis in the sense that like, if you do this particular drug, then it's opening the floodgates to all these other things is not really useful, I think, as a hypothesis, as a perception of how substance use works. And it fits into that scare tactic theory that you mentioned too, right? Like the idea was to scare you that if you take, you know, one puff of a cigarette, you're going down the road to cocaine. And that's not necessarily true. Not to mention also that that whole crack thing I was mentioning is part of a very sort of racist, you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, the black inner city, they're all on crack. There was at one point Dr. Carl Hart's new book actually called Drug Use for Grownups. He talks about the fact that there were these media stories going around that like black men on cocaine, you couldn't, you know, if you shot them and hit them with a bullet, it wouldn't even stop them, that they were Mm -hmm. like these superhumans. And that's like blatantly racist rhetoric where, you know, if white affluent men on Wall Street are doing cocaine, that's one thing. But if people in, you know, inner city are doing crack, then man, that is bad. And that's breaking the gateway hypothesis and turning, you know, black men into superhumans that can withstand being shot and still take down a cop. I mean, this is all rhetoric that, you know, is super racist and not at all accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, alcohol in particular seems to be woven throughout the social fabric of our culture. And there are countless memes about moms drinking wine at the end of a long day. (laughs) (laughs) And at most events, the bar (laughs) seems like it's the social hub of the party. But we know that kids are taking all of this in. They're watching the adults and all of the alcohol in our culture. So how do Mm -hmm. we, as pediatricians and parents, respond to kids who say, well, you drink when we're trying to teach them the opposite? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is really interesting. I've been been talking to a lot of people recently who are like, okay, well, does this mean that, you know, you can't have any alcohol in the house? And one of the things that's really interesting, for example, about our house is, you know, my kids have, it looks like genetics sort of set kids up sort of 50 to 60 percent of the risk factors really have uh, it boosts their risk. So my kids are at increased risk of substance abuse during their lifetimes. I don't drink, but my husband does. He's a totally normal social drinker. And one of the things that's been really interesting to me is that we can say all we want to kids about drinking and drug use, but what they see us do is actually more important. So one of the things my husband does in order to show empathy for me and to show respect for me and my situation is we don't keep alcohol in the house. So if he, you know, he'll buy like a single beer or something like that. And if he doesn't finish it, he pours it out and there just isn't alcohol in the house. So from my, what my kids see is they have a normal drinker in the house. They have someone who can't drink in the house, and they get to see a relationship where one partner respects the needs of the other. And so on many levels, we're hoping that we're sort of setting that example for them. In other houses, though, when you talk about the like the, the mommy drinking memes, you know, I really worry about the messaging, certainly absolutely not saying that people can't drink. And, and in fact, I think lots of adults use drugs and alcohol to relax, to be more social, to connect with other people. And I think Mm -hmm. that's all fantastic. I can't do that, but for lots lots and lots of people can. So I think what we need to not do for kids is to say things like, 
man, I had a really hard day at work and I really need this, you know, glass of wine. Or I'm so stressed out, I really need to unwind with this glass of wine. Sort of teaching them that the drinking is the medicine or the drinking is the way to deal with something that's scary to deal with. And in the addiction inoculation, I refer to Chris Heron, where he, mm-hmm. Chris Heron speaks a lot about drugs and alcohol in schools. He's a former opiate, he is a, a recovering opiate addict. And he says very specifically, we do so much talking about people's last use, we tend not to talk about people's first use. Yeah, I love and that. that's what we need to focus on. Because for me, the drink I miss the most is the one I get to have right before I go to a party so that it's mm-hmm. easier for me to step in. I don't have as much social anxiety. I don't have to worry about feeling like an imposter. I feel like I'm worthy of being there. And for me, that's something I really have to deal with. And you know, it says something to me about the fact that it's easier for me to go out and see other people when I have a drink in me. And what does that mean? And I worry about kids who don't feel like they're enough without right. a drink. And what is it about them? And how can we help them feel like they are enough so that they don't have to take that first drink in order to feel like they belong? Fulfilling whatever it is in kids so that they don't feel like they need that. And I'm so glad you talked, by the way, about healthcare providers because there's a whole section of the book talking about partnerships with your child's healthcare provider because with all of the wonderful screening and, um, for example, the expert uh, mm-hmm. screening tools, your pediatrician, your kid's pediatrician, your you know family medicine provider, whomever that person is, is such an incredible ally. Because if you give kids the space to have private time to talk to that physician or fill out the survey on the iPad or whatever it is they give you at the beginning of the appointment so that kids can be really frank about, you know, have I ever been in the car with someone who's been drunk driving, that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. your physician can really have a great effect on sort of keeping an eye on your individual kid's risk and intervening if that needs to happen. But I think that parent healthcare provider Partnership is an incredibly powerful tool for helping prevent our kids running into problems with risky behaviors and substance use. Yeah, thank you for acknowledging pediatricians as some of the greatest allies. And you mentioned that SBIRT model. So for people who don't know, that's screening, brief intervention, and then referral to treatment if needed. So the referral and the screening steps seem pretty obvious to me, but can you elaborate what you mean or what the AAP means too by the brief interventions? Like what can we do when we do identify some risk and we're talking to, you know, teens in the office? You know, it's funny as a pediatrician or as a healthcare provider, you know, there's one way to deal with this, but it's actually pretty similar to what happens to me as a writing teacher. So for 20 years, I've taught middle school and high school. And as a writing teacher, there's so many moments when I, kids use writing to admit to things, to Mm self-harm, to suicidal ideation, to all kinds of stuff. So obviously there's the other implications of, you know, having to report and things like that. But brief interventions for, you know, teachers or pediatricians can be as simple as, can we talk some more about this thing? Or you know, as a parent, it can be when talking about maybe like toxic relationships. There's a part of the book where I talk both in Gift of Failure and in the Addiction Inoculation about modeling for kids what good supportive relationships mean. And so if you have a kid who comes home and they're just they come home from this one kid's house all the time and they're just jangly and not themselves and irritable, you can say to them, you know, 
what is it about your relationship that you really feel like you're getting from that relationship? Mm-hmm. What is it that's sort of feeding you? And and uh, I'm a little worried that when you come home from that friend's house that you aren't yourself or you seem sad. That's a brief intervention. And for a pediatrician, it could look slightly different. Like if the survey at the beginning of the appointment on the little iPad thing comes back that, you know, yeah, they did get in a car once with someone who had been drinking, then that's a really great opportunity to sort of just talk about it. That Mm -hmm. does not mean your kid is going to be referred out for treatment. It doesn't mean your kid is going to be referred out for a psychiatric evaluation. It means that your pediatrician or your family medicine provider or your nurse practitioner has the opportunity to talk about it. And then Mm -hmm. there are levels to that. So if that were to escalate and the next year when the kid comes in for the well-child check, they notice that, you know, risky behaviors have increased a little bit, then that's a great opportunity for um, the pediatrician to talk about it with the kid again. And what's really interesting about brief interventions is that when the kids feel like they have the ability to shape the communication with the parent, like if the pediatrician is talking to the kid and is says, you know, I'm a little worried about your behaviors and I'd love to bring your parent into this conversation. Mm-hmm. When the kid feels like they have some control over how that communication happens, kids tend to be more invested in having the pediatrician or the other healthcare provider as an ally. So I think it's really important to remember that when they survey kids about whether or not they want to be able to tell the pediatrician or they want to involve the pediatrician in these conversations, they say yes, but they also want to have some control, especially in adolescence, over Mm -hmm. how that information gets communicated to their parents. So Mm, along with that, I just, I can't underline enough how important it is for kids as they get older, as it's developmentally appropriate for kids to have time alone with their healthcare provider. There are just things that kids will say that they won't say when their parents are in the room. And I think that's really important. And it it teaches our kids to self-advocate and to advocate for their health and to talk about their health and that kind of thing. So I would beg parents to give kids time with their healthcare provider. Definitely. I always find so much value in that time. And it's always not as sinister as parents think it is, too. Sometimes we're just talking about the positive things, (laughs) right? Right. Right. And starting all of these conversations, we've been talking about teens a lot, because certainly that's when this issue tends to peak. But starting this conversation early is really important. And then keeping the conversation going at an Mm age-appropriate level as kids grow up. And this is sort of that developmental approach that you alluded to about talking about addiction. Mm -hmm. And it works in school-based programs, but it also works in the family setting. And I have little kids, so it's easy for me to have family (laughs) dinners and hold them hostage there. But for parents of teenagers who often have busier social schedules, or let's be honest, the kids just won't come out of their room or put their phone down, it can be harder to have those conversations. So Tell us about your very special Leahy family dinner strategy and what this teaches us <laughs> about connecting with our kids. Well, first, before I even get to that, I just want to make sure, make it clear that when people talk about like, okay, how young should I be talking to my yeah. kids about this stuff? You know, it starts really, really, really young because, spoiler alert, the best substance abuse prevention programs, both for parents and schools, and hopefully there's a partnership between schools and parents. And hopefully we get better at this because, by the way, only like 57% of schools in this country have a substance abuse prevention program. And of that 57%, only 10% of them are evidence-based, which is just a disaster. So we can get better. And the very best programs, the very best evidence-based programs are programs that work in partnership with the home as well. So Mm -hmm. for little, little kids, it's not like you're talking to little, little kids about crack. But what you are talking to little kids about are is health. And, you know, when you're 
you know, when you're uh, brushing your teeth at night and having conversations about why we spit out the toothpaste and we don't swallow it, why, Mm -hmm. you know, as kids are learning their letters and let's say you're just chatting with your kid in the bathroom and there's a prescription bottle on the counter and the kids are learning their letters, you can say, can you find the letters of mommy's name or your name on this label? And then you talk about, well, why do you think my name is on or your name is on this label? And that's because we don't take drugs that are prescribed for other people because this is specifically for me and my body and how I'm built and all that sort of stuff. So -hmm. those conversations start really, really, really young. And they're just about health and protecting our bodies and protecting our autonomy and that kind of thing. But as you get older, yeah, they do get a little more complicated. I will say the more – this is like the sex talk. There is no one sex talk. And the more you have these conversations and normalize these conversations, and I'd highly recommend, for example, for the sex talk that you read Peggy Orenstein's book, Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex, the more we normalize these conversations, the easier they get. And so – The thing that you were referring to, the very (laughs) special Leahy dinner, was, you know, I have a 22-year-old and a 17-year-old, and they'd much rather, A, talk to each other or their friends (laughs) than to us. Right. And they definitely don't want to spend more time with us than is medically necessary, (laughs) family necessary. But one of the things that we do together is we watch a show called Hot Ones, and it's on the First We Feast channel on YouTube. And this guy, Sean Evans, hosts this wonderful interview show And the reason it's so wonderful is, number one, he does great research. Number two, he's interviewing people over 10 increasingly spicy chicken wings. Mm -hmm. And it's a great tool because it knocks people off their feet and it gets people off their defensive. And they'll answer things they wouldn't normally answer. And we love that show and we talk about it all the time. And so I decided to secretly create my own. So I went and got (laughs) hot wing or spicy wings, well, plain ones and some vegan wings and spiced them. I ordered all the same uh, hot sauces they used on that show and I set it up secretly. My husband and I came up with 10 questions we could ask each kid, one with each wing. And they were questions not meant to sort of dig into their privacy or really make them feel embarrassed, but questions about who they are. And oh my gosh, we had the best time. They came down, they knew immediately what it was. We had so much fun. (laughs) We laughed so much. And I found out so much about my children that evening. And I don't think, I'm not saying that's what you have to do. I am saying you have to meet your kids where they are. Find out what's important to them. Find out what they enjoy. And then meet them in that place. And the reason we did that is that, you know, when I am out speaking and talking to kids over and over and over again, I hear from kids that, I like talking to my parents. I just don't want to talk about the stuff they want to talk about all the time. So sometimes it it, it really can help if you can get into your kid's headspace and think about maybe just shocking them into something new, changing it up, trying something different, coming at them from the level that they're interested in and talking about the things they care about. Yeah, that's a great lesson for us. It was so much fun. (laughs) It sounds fun too, yeah. Well, shifting gears a little bit, we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that this book is coming out during a pandemic. So we know that things like toxic stress and transitions and prolonged time off from school can all be risks for substance abuse and are all things that we're experiencing now. So how do you think the pandemic has impacted rates of substance use in kids? First, I think it's going to take us a little while to figure that out fully. I think the full impact of what's going on will unfold over the next couple of years. I don't think even as, the, for example, the Monitoring the Future comes out, you know, it's mm-hmm. been harder to access kids. Hard, you know, it's not like kids have been 
life has been turned so upside down. You know, right. what I'm hearing from a lot of parents is that they're really worried about their kids, either because their kid is, you know, doing cave time more. Kids, Some kids went altogether mm-hmm. nocturnal during periods <laughs> of this. My kid was one of them. You know, kids are sad and depressed and Some kids, even introverted kids, are getting to the end of, you know, a year in, and we're in a state where, and I should clarify, I mean, my husband is an infectious diseases doc and a medical ethicist, and so, like, we follow to the letter of the law, so we have not, you know, (laughs) eaten in a restaurant. We don't, you know, my kid hardly leaves the house, and that's really tough on kids, even introverted kids, and so some Mm -hmm. kids you know, have really, there have been some wonderful silver linings. But for the most part, I'm really concerned about kids' social emotional learning. I'm really worried about their, you know, social skills. So for a lot of parents, it's been a matter of reassuring them that this year, I think we need to focus more on making sure that their mental health is intact and that their social emotional learning continues and worry a little more about that than about whether or not they can add two fractions with a common denominator, that kind of thing. But I'm also hearing from a lot of parents who are seeing up close and personal depression they hadn't really known about or Mm -hmm. finding out that their kids are using pot and they hadn't known that before, but they've now caught them because their kid is home more or finding out that their kid is getting drugs from someone who, you know, is dropping off in a specific spot in the neighborhood where then their kid goes out on a walk and picks it up. You know, there's all sorts of stuff going on right now that we are seeing for the first time, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't happening before. Mm -hmm. It's just I'm really worried for kids. And my colleagues uh, who are clinicians who work with kids, especially adolescents, they're reporting, you know, really high levels of anxiety, really high levels of depression, increased suicidal ideation. And I'm just really eager for kids to get back to a place where they can have a somewhat normal social life again, because that's Mm -hmm. such an important part of, you know, individuation and all that other all the other stuff that helps kids thrive and helps their brains grow. And I really am concerned. I mean, for example, I was talking to a kid the other day who sort of came into the place when he really wanted to start dating, getting a license, that kind of thing. And he's never been on a date. And I was thinking about, you know, oh, my gosh, when I was 17 years old, having an entire year taken away from me with the potential of even going on one date would have been devastating to me. And, you know, this kid, that's his life. Right. Yeah, it's so hard. And I agree. We as pediatricians, I think we all share that same concern about the impact on social development and the mental health of children in general, but especially those teenagers. Well, I could talk to you about this topic all day, but I know you have lots of book press to do. So tell us what you think pediatricians really need to take away from your research the most. I, I think, you know, there are a lot of practices for where, and I completely understand why this is the case. There are a lot of practices, and I hear from parents who talk to me about this all the time, where they would love to build a really good relationship with the kid's pediatrician or the kid's healthcare provider, but they never see the same person twice. You know, they see a practice, not a person. And right. in the same way, I used to work in um, juvenile court, and in the same way that we found that in juvenile court, having tracking, which is having the same judge with a kid over and over and over again, so that the judge Mm -hmm. and the kids start to develop a rapport and a relationship, and the judge really understands the background of that kid. Having one healthcare provider that a kid has a relationship with is essential. You know, Mm -hmm. having a a well child visit once a year from the get-go is not a ton of time to build a rapport with a healthcare provider, but then add on to that, that they may see a different person every year. 
if I could be queen of the world, I would set up a situation <laughs> where kids have one healthcare provider and they are able to develop a rapport, they're able to confide in, and that healthcare provider has a good relationship, a working relationship with both, you know, the community and the parents. Um, and I mm-hmm. completely get that that is not available everywhere. You know, I'm I'm in an incredibly fortunate situation. My husband happens to work at a hospital. My son and I both see the same family medicine provider, and my son could literally walk from his school to go see that family medicine provider hmm. because it's a community-based family medicine provider. Mm-hmm. And I get that that's very, very rare, but it's also something that I wish every kid had access to and every family mm-hmm. had access to because it's that continuity and that feeling of support is um, is really what allows kids to open up. Mm-hmm. That's great. And on the pediatrician side, it's it's very rewarding for us, too, to have those longitudinal relationships with our patients and families. So, yeah, it's so important. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing your story and teaching us what you've learned from your experiences and your research in writing the addiction inoculation. Tell us where listeners can find you. You can find everything at jessicalahey.com, and that's L-A-H-E-Y. You know, the link to my podcast, the hashtag AmWritingPodcast, which is a podcast just about writing and being a writer, and my two co-hosts just are amazing, best-selling authors. But I'm on Twitter a lot, at Jess Leahy. Um, it's, uh, Twitter is sort of my favorite place to hang out, but you can find <laughs> everything at jessicalahey.com. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you today, and I've learned so much from the addiction inoculation already. Well, I learned so much from interviewing pediatricians while I was researching the addiction inoculation. (laughs) So I'm incredibly grateful because I wouldn't have known about screening. I wouldn't have known about Espert. I wouldn't have known about, you know, heads and all the other um, available screeners out there if I hadn't had um, the opportunity to talk with pediatricians. So I am in your debt as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.